Good morning, church. Uh, my name is Andrew, and I serve as one of the pastors here. I have the privilege of leading us through our study today as we continue our Advent celebration. So if you got your Bibles, turn them open to Luke chapter 2. Uh, find your way to Luke chapter 2 as we're going to read a beautiful passage of Scripture that is quite familiar, not only to those who have grown up in church and are familiar with Christian, uh, the Christian faith and with the Bible, it's also a, a passage that is familiar this time of year to those outside of the church because culturally there's lots of images associated with Christmas that are found in this story when we think about shepherds and we think about mangers and we think about angels and all those dynamics. Well, we pick up today in verse 8 of chapter chapter 2 to read this remarkable moment when the glory of the Lord appears to some shepherds out in a field and consider the domino effect that that would have on the events in their lives. So look at verse 8 of chapter 2. In the same region, shepherds were staying out in the fields and keeping watch at night over their flock. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, don't be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the city of David, a Savior was born for you, who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be the sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped tightly in cloth and lying in a manger. Suddenly there was a multitude of the heavenly host with the angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to people he favors. When the angels had left them and returned to heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go straight to Bethlehem. And see what has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. They hurried off and found both Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. After seeing them, they reported the message they were told about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary was treasuring up all these things in her heart and meditating on them. The shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things they had seen and heard, which were just as they had been told. Well, in July of 2010, there was a professor at the University of Sheffield who uh, worked in the realm of astrophysics. He and his team discovered a star at the time was considered the brightest star that we have learned about in the known universe. It was such a bright star that a welder's helmet would not help us or help them look at this giant mass of, of burning fire in the sky. It was roughly 265 million times larger than our sun. And not only was it larger than our sun, it, was, it shone uh, 10 million times greater. The, the light coming from it was 10 million times more intense than that which comes from, from our own. And so they named the star cleverly and creatively R136A1. So if you're into that sort of thing, you can look into that and, and find this star. Now, think about how bright this is. This star isn't twice as bright as our sun. That would be overwhelming in and of itself. This star is not 10 times brighter than our sun, which is a brightness that we could hardly imagine, that we could hardly fathom or dream about. It's not a hundred times brighter or a thousand times brighter or a million times brighter. This sun is 
10 million times brighter than our own. It's the kind of light that our eyes and our lives are too weak to handle. I mean, we can't go outside here without applying sunscreen because we need some type of mediation to handle the intensity of the rays coming off the sun. Can you imagine coming in contact with something this bright, something this brilliant? Well, thinking about this star has us thinking about the nature of our God. When you think about what it means for God to be God and who he is in his godness, understand that the scripture describes him as dwelling in an unapproachable light. That his essence is bright. His essence is brilliant. His essence shines. This is why when the glory of God appears in the world all throughout the Old Testament, it often appears in the form of some bright light, whether it be a flaming fire or lightning or some dynamic that is brilliant and bright and hot with heat. The glory of the Lord, when it appears in the world, it shines and it stuns. It affects everyone who comes in contact with it, sometimes in a good way, and sometimes in a tough way. And it all boils down to how those people who come in contact with the glory of the Lord, how they respond in that moment. Well, here in Luke chapter 2, we have shepherds coming in contact with the glory of the Lord. The glory of the Lord is shining around them as they are doing their job out in the middle of the field late at night and much to their surprise, the glory of the Lord appears. Now, the reason why that is surprising is because the people of Israel have not come in contact with the glory of God in quite some time. The tragic end of the Old Testament happened when the glory of the Lord, the presence of God, the brilliance of the Lord departed and left the temple and departed from Israel in, a, in response to Israel's inability and their unwillingness to carry out their covenant commitments. The people of Israel kept falling short of the glory of God. They were not worthy of the presence of God dwelling and residing in their midst. And so the Old Testament ends in a tragic and sad way where the glory of the Lord departs from amongst the people. Nevertheless, there are still promises littered throughout the Old Testament that one day the glory of the, of the Lord would reside not just among God's people, but within God's people once again. And so there were some faithless worshipers of the faithful worshipers of the Lord in Israel that were anticipating this day, that were expecting this day. People like Zechariah and Elizabeth, to some degree Mary and Joseph, but shepherds were not anticipating the glory of the Lord. This wasn't a group of people that were looking forward to the glory of the Lord appearing once again. They did not expect the glory of the Lord to shine upon them as they were doing their job late one evening. This is why we're told that the glory of the Lord, when it shone, it terrified them. That it was a disturbing glory. Their response to the angel showing up and the glory of the Lord shining was to be terrified. They, were, they feared with a great fear. That's what that word literally means. And the reason why the glory of the Lord disturbs them in this moment is because of the context. The glory of the Lord hasn't shown up in a long time. You would expect that if it were to come down again, it would come down perhaps at the temple in Jerusalem. 
where religious people lived, where religious people dwelled, where the good people were, you would have thought that the glory of the Lord would have shown up and come down on that place at that time. Or if not in Jerusalem, perhaps you would have expected the glory of the Lord to show up in Rome and to appear to the, to the most powerful people in the world, those that everyone looked to for leadership and for guidance and for strength and protection. Yet in this moment, the glory of the Lord isn't going to Jerusalem. It isn't going to Rome. The glory of the Lord is appearing once again in the world, out in a field. Out in a field in the middle of nowhere, late at night, to some shepherds. Now, in the Old Testament, you might read about shepherds and think that shepherds were, uh, they, they're kind of nice people that did a, a respectable job for, for the people of Israel. In the Old Testament, it carried with it a little bit of dignity, being a shepherd. In many cases, being a shepherd was a familial vocation. You kind of became a shepherd because your, mom, your dad was a shepherd or your grandpa was a shepherd. And you just kind of grew up into that occupation. But... In the shift between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the perception of what it means to be a shepherd changed. So that shepherds were not people considered to be important. They were not viewed with much significance. In many ways, shepherds at the time of the first century, they were viewed with suspicion as many people in Judaism viewed shepherds as thieves and robbers. Usually because when they would herd their sheep, they would use whatever land they wanted to. They didn't ask for permission. They just went wherever they wanted. They, they trespassed land and property that did not belong to them or they did not have privilege to. And so people viewed them with suspicion, thinking these guys can't be trusted. Shepherds occupied a low ring on the social ladder. They were not viewed as being significant or important. They were viewed with suspicion and in some cases disdain. The only person who was lower than them on the social ladder were leopards. And lepers were viewed that way because they were considered unclean as a result of their disease. Well, shepherds also were viewed as being ceremonially unclean because they were constantly interacting with sheep and animals, and carcasses, and all the things that sheep, and animal, and animals, and carcasses leave behind. And so they were, in a sense, perpetually unclean. And so shepherds were not allowed to participate in many of the ceremonies that took place in Judaism at the time. They were not allowed to participate in some of the worship rituals of the first century Jewish world. They were considered outsiders, and they were overlooked, They were insignificant and they were unimportant. So one of the reasons why this is a disturbing glory is because of the context where the glory of the Lord appears, where it finally shows up in the world. It shows up to these insignificant shepherds in a brilliant way. Now, you think about glory. Now, when we talk about the glory of the Lord, we are talking about the brilliance of his presence, God coming near and being with his people. But we're also talking about the significance or the importance or the weightiness of the Lord. The word in Hebrew that was translated glory is a word kavod, and it literally meant heavy. So when you talked about the glory of the Lord, you're talking about something weighty. And it became a euphemism over time that referred to importance or significance. 
And so you have this context where the glory, the brilliance and importance and significance of the Lord is showing up in the world again, and it is showing up to people who were not viewed as being important and were not viewed as carrying much weight in society. And so no wonder they're terrified because they didn't expect to encounter the glory of God in this moment. But not only is the glory of the Lord disturbing them here because of the context, but also because of the contrast. When the glory of the Lord shines around them, they understand that they themselves are not qualified to stand and to enjoy and to see and to savor the glory of God in the world. They knew themselves to be unclean. They knew themselves to be unimportant. They knew themselves to lack significance because the signs pointing to that about them were everywhere. And so when the glory of the Lord shows up, they are terrified because they are seeing there is a stark difference between unclean, unimportant shepherds and this brilliant, shining, significant presence of the holy God. Their response in this moment is very similar to how Isaiah would respond in Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah looked up and he saw the Lord seated on his throne, high and exalted. The train of the Lord's robe filled the temple and, and smoke began to shake things up in that moment. And then he noticed that these seraphim, these fiery angelic beings were just flying around the throne of God, singing and crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of your glory. In other words, the whole earth is making known your importance, your brilliance, your significance. That's clear everywhere. And when Isaiah sees this, the contrast between him and the Lord becomes stark. He notices it. So he says, woe is me. Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live in the midst of a people with unclean lips. And in the Old Testament, the lips were attached to the heart. So when Isaiah talks about his lips being unclean, he's referring to the fact that his heart isn't right. That he's not clean enough to be in the presence of the glory of God. And so the contrast between Isaiah and the Lord was stark then, and the contrast between the shepherds and the glory of the Lord shining out in the middle of that field, it should be apparent to us as well. So they respond to the disturbing glory of the Lord with terror, with fear. They're disturbed. What they experience in this moment is what many people experience when they come to faith in Christ. Because a person doesn't come to faith in Christ until they recognize how desperate they need Christ. And they realize that they are not able to stand in the presence of the glory of God and enjoy it. Instead, there's something about them that isn't right. There's something about them that is broken. There's something about them that's not clean. And so when we're confronted with that which is clean or that which is brilliant or that which is important, when we're confronted with that, it creates a sense of terror, a sense of fear. And so we want to push back against the Lord. We don't want to come close to him. We want to get away from him. Well, the shepherds were tempted perhaps to turn and to run, but they don't. And they don't because the glory of the Lord that was disturbing them in this moment is the same glory that would disarm them. Notice what happens in verse 10. 
The angel begins to speak to disarm them of their terror, to disarm them of their fear, to disarm them of any feeling of inadequacy in that moment. Listen to what the angel says. Verse 10, but the angel said to them, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. For look, I proclaim to you, here it is, good news. The word good news there is the word we get, is the word where we get the word gospel from. The angel disarms the shepherds by sharing with them the gospel, the message. And he says, I've come to bring you good news of great joy. And this is what he goes on to say. Good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the city of David, a Savior was born for you who is the Messiah and the Lord. So he refers to Jesus in three ways. First, Jesus is considered Savior. He's the one who's come to our rescue. And we know that Jesus has come to save us, not from Roman oppression, but to save us from that which causes us to be unclean in the presence of God, namely our sin. The fact that we fall short of the glory for which we are created. We are not worthy. We're too weak to handle the weightiness and the significance of the glory of the Lord in our lives. And so one of the things that Jesus comes to save us from is that. He's come to do something about that because he is the Savior. But he's also the Messiah. The Messiah is the word whereby we get the word Christ. Anytime you read Christ in the New Testament, it's a translation of the word Messiah. The Messiah is the anointed one that the Old Testament anticipates. That all throughout the Old Testament, the anticipation of the Messiah, the anointed one, will come from God and be our true prophet, to be our great high priest, to be our eternal king. This is who this baby born in Bethlehem is. He is Savior coming to our rescue, and he is Messiah, the anointed one who's come to fulfill all that God promised he would fulfill. But then he drops one other title on there, and he refers to this baby born in a manger. And this is mind-blowing. If, if you let yourself meditate, it on, meditate on it long enough, he refers to Jesus, this baby, as Lord. Now, sometimes people like to suggest, to put it mildly, that the New Testament never explicitly states that Jesus is God. But any time you see Jesus forgiving sins, understand that Jesus is doing the very thing that only God can do. So when Jesus forgives a sinner, he is revealing himself to be God. But then any time you see the word title, Lord, applied to him, understand that that title refers and reveals that Jesus is more than a man. That he's not an ordinary human being. He is the God-man. He is the word made flesh who's now dwelling among us. This is what Lord is speaking to. And this Lord, the same Lord that Isaiah was confronted with in the temple in the year that King Uzziah died, this holy and glorious Lord that is being worshipped by the seraphim, this Lord is now living in a manger. The creator of the universe has now identified with his creation. The one who created us in his image has now taken on, taken on our image and became human, was born in the likeness of humanity. Now, you think about that dynamic. You think about Jesus 
and this message that the angel is sharing and how disarming it is to know that God has come. The Savior, Messiah, Lord has come for us. But then you think about how disarming it is to know that this God is now lying in a manger. I can't think of anything more disarming than a baby. Now, if you haven't spent much time with babies, babies might frighten you, but you're probably afraid because you're worried you're going to harm the baby. You're not worried that the baby's going to harm you because a baby is vulnerable. A baby is just can't do much. And so if you're afraid of a baby, it's because you're afraid of what you might do to it, not what it might do to you. Well, I can't think of anything less frightening, less intimidating, less... Um, Well, frightening and intimidating than a baby lying in a manger. Because when you look at a baby in a manger, you're looking at something very familiar because that's what you used to be. When you look at a baby in a manger, you're looking at something very vulnerable. You're not looking at a person who you would expect could inflict great harm upon you. And so you think about the terror that the shepherds felt when the glory of the Lord shone around them and when they make the trip to Bethlehem and they look at Jesus lying in a manger understand that when they look at baby Jesus they are seeing the glory of the Lord this is why John 1 14 would say what it says about the word becoming flesh and dwelling among us and we observed his glory the glory as the one and only son from the father the brilliance of God is now a baby the The importance and significance, the weightiness of the creator of the universe is now lying in a manger. That's a disarming, that's a disarming dynamic. When you come to understand that God took on flesh and dwelt among us to rescue us from our sin, from our insignificance, from our lack of feeling valued or importance, when the Lord came to rescue us from that, and he came in this way, What that does is it should disarm us. It should cause us to lay down our pride. It should disarm us of our rebellion. It should disarm us of our hatred. It should disarm us of our lack of trust. It should disarm us of everything that falls short of the glory of God because the glory of God has come to us. It's a disarming glory when you look at Jesus lying in a manger. There was a moment in the Old Testament where Moses is wanting to see the glory of God. And he prays hard. He he says, God, would you show me your glory? I want to see your glory. Show me your glory. And if you're familiar with that story, the Lord responded to Moses and actually answered his request. But do you remember what the Lord said to Moses? He said to him in that moment, I will cause all of my goodness to pass before you. I will show you my glory. And then the Lord allows his goodness to pass before Moses. The glory of the Lord is tied to the goodness of God. And when you look at Jesus born and lying in a manger, you should see the glory and the goodness of God. And that goodness should disarm us. It should cause us to lay down our arms and to surrender the rebellion that we've been engaged in all of our days. It's a disarming glory that is showing up in Bethlehem. But notice in verse 13 that before the shepherds go there, 
they catch a glimpse of what's going on in heaven in a way very similar to Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. We're told that suddenly there was a multitude of the heavenly host. And a multitude, that's a lot, right? It's a lot of angels that they're seeing. And they're joining the angel that was there. And and they're hearing this praise echoing. Glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to people he favors. A multitude of the heavenly host is crying out the same truth. Peace to those That God favors. Now, it took a multitude of angels to convince the shepherds that they were the types of people that the Lord would favor. And I hope you're hearing this word today because sometimes it takes a lot for us to believe that the Lord favors people like us. That he would favor people who are on the outside of society. He would favor people who are on the low ring of the social ladder. He would favor people who are broken, who are belittled, who are unclean by so many things that he would favor those types of people. Sometimes it takes a a multitude of heavenly voices to convince the center of that reality. Well, the shepherds are receiving that grace in this moment, and I hope you receive this grace today too. That you are the types of sinners and sufferers that God favors. God's favor doesn't come to you because you deserve it. God's favor doesn't come to you because you earn it. God's favor doesn't come to you because you have impressed him by the way you've done your job or that you've, way you've been a friend to people. God's favor doesn't come to you in response to anything you have done or will do. God's favor comes to you because you need it. Peace on earth to people he favors. This is why if you are a person who's refusing to be disarmed and you're not willing to lay down your pride and to admit that you need Savior, Messiah, Lord, if you're not willing to recognize that you have fallen short of the glory of God, then that favor will not be yours. God favors those who need him. God favors those who are broken, who are beleaguered, who are struggling. And so we want to be disarmed. We want to humble ourselves before the Lord because God gives grace to the humble, but God opposes the proud. He resists those who are still holding their fists up in rebellion against him. Those are those he resists. But he gives grace to those who humble, who are disarmed, who just come to him and recognizing their need. Hearing the sound of the heavenly host, peace on earth to people he favors. And then the angels leave and the shepherds are like, okay, let's go see this baby. Let's get to Bethlehem as quickly as possible. And so they hurry in response to what the angel had said to them. And they go and they see the child. And there they are confronted with a you, you begin to see an evolution of the glory of the Lord in this passage. At first, it, it's disturbing. It terrifies the shepherds. Then you see the glory of the Lord disarming them through the message of the gospel and through the manger, that the Christ child is born and is laying now in a manger, that that's a disarming dynamic. But then you come to the last stretch of the passage and you find that the glory of the Lord is actually dignifying these shepherds. 
And it is dignifying all those who are coming to the Christ child to worship him and to see him and to adore him. You find this dignifying glory of the Lord and it shows up in three ways. One, it shows up in the shepherds' lives because they experience a new proximity. Remember, these are the guys that were out in the field. They were nowhere near Jerusalem. They are out in the field. These are social outsiders. These are unimportant, insignificant people. And yet the glory of the Lord appeared to them. The glory of the Lord disarmed them. And now the glory of the Lord is bringing them in. So there's a new proximity, whereas they were at one time far from God. Now they're being brought to close, as close to God as they can get. They're going to step into that stable and look at the baby Jesus. Who knows? Maybe Mary picked up the child and handed it to one of the shepherds to hold. And these outsiders are being brought inside. These unimportant people are being dignified with an encounter with the Christ child. It's a dignifying glory when you see this movement happening in their lives. But not only do you have a new proximity in this passage, there's also a new priority. There's a new priority in this passage. And you see this not so much in the shepherds as you see in Mary's example in verse 19. Because when the shepherds were visiting them and they were telling Mary what just happened out in the field and she's being brought up to speed with all that's happening, verse 19 says that Mary was treasuring up all these things in her heart and meditating upon them. This is the third time we're told that Mary treasured something and that Mary meditated upon something. We're going to see this happen again, uh, either next week or the week after that, where Mary, once again, treasure, we're told that Mary's treasuring and meditating upon God's activity. So when I say that this dignifying glory brought a new priority to Mary's life, she is one who's recognizing what should be valued. She's recognizing what should be prioritized. She's treasuring God's work in the world, and she's meditating upon it. All that God has been doing up to this point is not going to be lost on her. She refuses to forget. She refuses to set aside. She takes it in. She values it. She prioritizes it. She meditates upon it. She treasures God's work in the world. You know, one of the saddest things that happens as as a pastor who interacts with people who kind of sometimes come to faith in Christ and sometimes walk away from faith in Christ. And one of the saddest things for me as a pastor is whenever I see someone who I knew had had a legitimate encounter with Jesus, who experienced God's work in the world, who saw his goodness in the way that he provided for them or did something for them, but in time... That person has walked away from the faith, no longer identifies with Christ. I can't help but think about um, Susan from the last battle in the Chronicles of Narnia. As I shared last week, I've been working back through these stories with my kids, and we've come now to the last battle. and, And we were struck last week by what happened to Susan. Because her storyline, her plot in the Narnia series ends sadly. It ends in tragedy. 
If you recall, she's one of the four siblings who in the, who in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe was called to Narnia and participated in the battle against the White Witch. She and her little sister Lucy were there when Aslan was killed on the stone table and they witnessed his resurrection. They saw him come back to life and they ran with him back to war. They, she experienced everything that Lucy experienced. She experienced everything that her brothers, Edmund and Peter, experienced. She saw it all. She was there. She was on the front lines of that battle. But when you come to the end of the Narnia series, and she was brought back to her world, and she grew up, we're told that as she grew up, she grew out of faith. And one of the saddest lines in my opinion, that you can read in any work of fiction is when C.S. Lewis states that Susan is no longer a friend of Narnia. That something happened. She didn't prioritize her experiences in that land. She didn't prioritize or treasure that which she encountered and was a part of in Narnia. She forgot about it. She grew up and grew out of it. She wasn't like her little sister and her two brothers, friends of Narnia, who, whose experiences in that land with Aslan would mark them all of their days. Her life changed. And she walked away from those experiences. And I can't help but think perhaps the reason is because she didn't treasure them. She didn't meditate upon them. She didn't consider them deeply, consider them regularly. I couldn't help, but she had other priorities of this earthly life kind of push that priority out of her heart and take their place. And we're told in the story that, that as she grew up and grew out of faith, was no longer a friend of Narnia. Part of the reason was because she got too mature. She was too worried about her social circle and her social standing. And so she left all that behind. And it's a sad ending to her storyline and it's a storyline that I don't want to see repeated in any of our lives, which is why I want to encourage you to look at Mary's example. Consider how she's treasuring these experiences. Consider how she's meditating upon them. They're not going to be lost on her. Don't let the gospel be lost on you. Hear the gospel, believe the gospel, and hold on to the gospel. Endurance is required in saving faith. We believe and we keep believing. We have an experience with God when we put our faith in Jesus and we remember that. We treasure that. We meditate upon that. We think about it over and over and over again. Mary's experience in this story wasn't lost on her because she treasured them up. She meditated upon them. Her life was marked out by a new priority. But then that brings us to the third dynamic of this dignifying glory. And that is the shepherds were given a new purpose. That the brilliance and the significance of the glory of the Lord flooded their souls so that when they leave in verse 20, they return to their occupation. They return to their status, and it says that they glorify and praise God for all the things they saw and heard. Meaning they were still shepherds. Their status didn't change. They were still poor. They were still looked down upon by society in general. But they have a new purpose. 
So that now, yeah, they're shepherds, but they are God-glorifying shepherds. They are shepherds now doing the very thing for which they were created. They are enjoying the glory of God. They are giving glory to the Lord. They are living out the importance and the significance of what God created them for in this moment. One of the most remarkable things about becoming a Christian is that when you become a Christian, your status in this world might not change. Understand that in the Narnia series, Edmund and Peter and Lucy, when they were living in their world, they were just kids, ordinary people. You would not have considered them anything special. But in Narnia, what were they? They were kings and queens. When you come to know Christ and you become a part of his kingdom right now, your status in this world might not seem very important. It might not seem very impressive. But in the kingdom of God, you are kings and queens. You are royalty. You are sons and daughters of the most high God. There's dignity that comes to those who put their faith in Jesus, who are reconciled to the glory for which they are created. And this is the dignity that we carry with us when we go to our work as teachers or we go to our work as students or we go to our work as moms and dads, as sons and daughters, as we do the varied vocations that we have in this life. There's a dignity in that because we know who we are. That we belong to God and we now live for the glory of God. It's a beautiful thing that happens when you are reconciled to these dynamics. So you consider the flow of the gospel in the story. The flow of the gospel is disturbance. Something's wrong with me and I can't quite handle that. To being disarmed. Though this is true about me, God's going to do something for me. This is why he sent Jesus to be Savior, Messiah, and Lord. And then as you are disarmed, what happens? Dignity floods your soul as your life is changed and you're reconciled to your God. And you go about your days now living with a purpose in close proximity with your God, treasuring and meditating upon all that he has done for you and upon all the things that he will do for you in the future. And so if you're someone who have not yet experienced saving faith in this way, you, you haven't put your faith in Christ, I encourage you today to do so. To let yourself be disturbed by the fact that you are a sinner who falls short of the glory of God. Be disturbed by that reality, but don't let that reality defeat you because God has come to disarm you. He loves you. He cares for you. He sent Christ into this world before you ever looked in his direction. So let it disarm you and then receive the dignity that he wants to pour into your life as he gives you himself in relationship. He gives you himself in fellowship. He gives you himself in glory. So put your faith in Christ And treasure and meditate upon him all the days of your life. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the glory for which we are created, recognizing that though we fall short of your glory, that your grace abounds and that peace is available to sinners and sufferers like us. Thank you for favoring those who need you. And I pray that we would be acutely aware of how much we need you as we journey through this world. So God, I pray that your presence would bring dignity, that your glory would bring dignity into our lives. Give us grace to walk closely with you. 
Give us grace to treasure and to meditate upon all that you are doing and have done and will do. And, and God, I pray that you would help us to live out a new purpose as we enjoy the dignity that you bestow upon us by flooding our souls with your glory. We love you and we pray this now in Jesus' name.